Colossians chapter 3. We're, we're three weeks in. This is our third week in our series called Relationship Restart. Relationship Restart. And we're in this uh, portion of Colossians where the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, just takes some space and begins to define some relationships that are really important in our lives. Uh, and as a Christian, we need to pay attention to these relationships. If you read verses 18 all the way through chapter 4, verse 1, the Bible says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, be not bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ." But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done. And there's no respect to persons with God. Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. And what we did a couple of weeks ago is we introduced this series and we said, you know what, God gives us six relationships that we need to pay attention to. God, God wants us to make sure that, that, man, if our relationships aren't right. It's kind of like our communication devices, our mobile devices. When the code gets all jacked up and, and we don't have right relationships, God really wants us to have a reboot, a restart, and let God's Word and, and the way God, God's Word defines these relationships be executed in our life. And so we have wives, husbands, children, fathers, servants, and masters. Three weeks ago, we jumped ahead and, and we actually dealt with the fathers first because it was Father's Day I, I took a little liberty and said, well, let's just go ahead and deal with that one first. And then two weeks ago, we, we talked about wives submitting yourselves to your own husbands. We had actually like a three or four year low in attendance on that particular Sunday. I'm sure that means something. I'm not sure what it means, but I'm sure it means something. This morning, wives, I'm glad you brought your husband to church because you got the sermon note email last night. And so this morning... We're going to talk about husbands this morning, and uh, you know, guys, we, we kind of get actually a little bit, uh, we get more attention through this thing because God deals with us as husbands and as fathers, and then you know, even as employees, employers, and things like that, and man, we catch a lot of this teaching as men, and as we should. Uh, so let me just remind you this morning that these first two relationships, wives and husbands, God begins this passage of Scripture dealing with marriage, husbands and wives, wives and husbands. And I, and I mentioned two weeks ago that the Bible actually opens with marriage. It opens with a husband and a wife, you know, Adam and Eve. And, and God defines from the very beginning the importance of this human relationship because it ultimately pictures Christ in the church. And so, and so the Bible opens with a husband and a wife the first miracle that Jesus did in his earthly ministry was at a marriage in Cana, John chapter 2. Jesus himself is espoused, the Bible says, to a wife, which is the church. We'll talk about that in a little bit. And then even at the very end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 19, Jesus Christ experiences what's called the marriage supper of the Lamb where he actually marries, he's a spouse to this bride, but now he actually is married to her, and there's a wonderful celebration, and there's a whole host of people invited 
to this ceremony. And so marriage is really important in the, in the Word of God. We dealt with the wives a couple of weeks ago. We're going to deal with the husbands this morning. I, I want to just remind us, this is one of the greatest pictures, if not the greatest picture, of the Lord Jesus Christ and His church. That's why God emphasizes this so much, because it is to picture Christ in the church. And so husbands, this morning, as we talk about this, uh, we need to understand that that's God's picture and maybe you're a wife or maybe you're single this morning and you would say, well, thank God that this, this sermon doesn't apply to me today. I can, I can coast, uh, take a nap. No, no, no. Listen, if you're saved, you actually have a husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so even this for us as Christians is going to be an important lesson today because we're going to understand how Christ has a right relationship toward us as our one true husband. So let's pray and then uh, we'll get into the notes uh, as we begin. Father, we love you this morning. I do pray uh, you give me strength and wisdom, and, and Father, may your Holy Spirit just lead uh, as, as these truths are communicated. Father, we're thankful. We're thankful that we can come into your house, uh, even on a rainy day, and we can worship together, we can fellowship together. Uh, Lord, we can hear from your word together. I pray you do a mighty work in my life, in my heart. Uh, give us wisdom, give us understanding, so that we can be more like Christ. We love you. We thank you for all the people that are watching at home uh, on Facebook and YouTube. God bless them today. We love them. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so this morning in your notes, point number one, let's get right into it. We're going to talk about a unique title, and that title that we're going to talk about today is that of a husband, that of a husband, and I'll tell you that there is something special in a name. This word husband, and listen, when you, when you really dig into the Bible, there's something more to this name than most of us give credit to. As a matter of fact, when you begin to compare Scripture with Scripture, you see a beautiful understanding unfold from God's Word of what God intends and what God means when He uses the word or the title, husband. Uh, that same word is also called husbandman in other places in the Bible. For instance, Genesis 9 and verse 20, Noah began to be an husbandman and he planted a vineyard. And as we go through Jeremiah uh, 51 Second uh, Timothy 2, every time you see this word husbandman used, it is always associated with someone who works in a field, who plants a vineyard, who plows and breaks up the ground. Jeremiah 51 and verse 23, the Bible says, I will also break in pieces with thee the shepherd and his flock, and, I will, uh, and with thee will I break in pieces the husbandman and his yoke of oxen. So a husbandman is someone who works in a field. He plants a field. He uses oxen to till the ground. He sows seed. Second Timothy talks about the husbandman that laboreth, being a partaker of the fruits. So again, we just think in our culture and mindset that a husband is just the male part of the married relationship. But there's so much more to it than that. James chapter 5 talks about this husbandman waiting for the precious fruit of the earth. And so this, this title is unique because God tells us, man, this husband role is one of a tiller of the ground, one that brings forth fruit from a field. And so as we get into the Bible, I want you to understand that the very first Adam, the first Adam, as in the Adam in the book of Genesis, he was a husbandman. He was a husband 
Genesis chapter 2 and verse 5, the Bible tells us that God saw a need for a man to till the ground. And I'll remind you that in Genesis chapter 2, sin has not happened yet. Adam and Eve have not fallen into sin. God is, is very precise with his order. Genesis 2 and verse 5 says, Every plant of the field before it was in the earth, every herb of the field before it grew, and the Lord had not caused it to rain upon the earth like today. All right, And there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Remember, this is pre-fall, pre-sin. God looks at his creation and says, you know what? Everything's perfect. Everything's good. There's a need for a man to work this ground, to till this ground. God watered it, not with rain, but this mist from the earth And so as you read through Genesis 2, you get down to verses 7 and 8, and the Bible says, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And we say, thank God for that. Then in verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. God saw a need in verse 5. Well, there's no man to till the ground. And then God made man, and then God put that man in the garden that God himself planted. And and, and man's role was to literally be an husbandman, a gardener, one that would work the ground, possibly with oxen, because those beasts were created in Genesis chapter 2, or Genesis 1, and and certainly alive in Genesis chapter 2. I mean, listen, Adam would have labored in that garden. God's intention was that he would labor, but it wasn't because of sin. You could say he would labor without sweating, <laughs> without thorns, without thistles. And, and, and listen, God intended for him to be a husbandman in the garden of God. And then God gave him a wife. God gave him a wife from his side, from a, from a rib from his side. And there's a beautiful picture of Christ in the church, even in Genesis But I want you to just just pay attention for a second because the very first time the word husband is used is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6 in your whole Bible. The Bible says, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also to her husband with her, and he did eat. Adam's first role as a husbandman was in the garden of God. The second garden that Adam was to be a husbandman to was his wife. The Bible says that that she gave unto her husband. In other words, not just the male counterpart of the, the marriage relationship, but Adam, listen, Adam was to love his wife, nurture his wife, care for his wife, see fruit brought forth from his wife. And by the way, they were both in the garden of God. And and so this, this name is unique of husbandman. Now listen, because we have read the Bible, many of you know that things didn't work out perfectly in that garden. As a matter of fact, because of sin... That first Adam died in that garden 
because he violated God's commandment. And ultimately, he was unable to bring forth fruit in the garden of God because he was evicted from it. And he was unable to bring forth spiritual fruit in the life of his wife because they both lost the image of God because of sin. So this first Adam died in that garden because of sin, and the result is the curse of sin amongst all humanity. Romans chapter 5 tells us that in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And I just want to make, you, make the point, listen, that first Adam, well, he failed as a husband. We can look at him as, a, as an example of a failed husbandry. Being a failed husbandman, and I'm not trying to be critical to any of us, we need to learn from his example of what he, what he did wrong so that we don't fall into the same trap. Now, in your notes, listen, the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, was also and is also a husband. And I use that terminology, the first Adam and the last Adam, we get that out of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45, it's not in your notes, but listen, the Bible calls... Adam in the book of Genesis, the first Adam, and the Bible calls the Lord Jesus Christ the last Adam. And both were called Adam because both bore and, and bore the image of God in their life. Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus Christ himself is the image of the invisible God. But, but here's the point. Look, the last Adam is a husband. The Lord Jesus Christ is a husband. 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 2 tells us, Paul writes to the Corinthian church and he says, I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy for I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So Christ is the husbandman of the church, the body of Christ. When we read Ephesians 5, you know, we read that and, and, and we always think God's teaching about marriage Husbands and wives. Well, he is, but he's really teaching about Christ in the church. Ephesians 5, verse 23, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. And it uses that, that correlation between a husband and Christ, because Christ is a husband. Ephesians 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives even as... Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. And so here, here's the point. Look, Jesus Christ is a husband. He's the one true husband of the one true wife, the bride of Christ. And, and, and so, listen, go back to that first Adam for just a second. You know, he failed as a husbandman, and he died in that garden spiritually. And, and he failed his wife, and, and for all of, you know, the rest of humanity, we suffer the consequence of that. Well, let me also encourage you that the last Adam was in a garden. John chapter 19 and verse 41 says, the place that he, the Lord Jesus Christ, was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulcher, wherein was never man yet laid. There laid they Jesus, therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulcher was nigh in the hand. You know, the cross and that tomb was in a garden. And the Lord Jesus Christ died in a garden, just like that first Adam died in a garden, except he didn't die for his own sin. He died for your sin and my sin. He didn't fail as a husband. As a matter of fact, he, because he is the last Adam, because he's God in the flesh, he defeated sin in that garden. He undid the curse 
that had been present on humanity for thousands of years. He defeated death in that garden. He defeated the grave in that garden. And he was raised victoriously on the third day, oh, by the way, in that garden. And now he is the one husband of the church. And listen, let me just, let me just tell you, he seeks to labor in the field to bring forth fruit through his espoused wife for the glory of God. That's, that's, that's his job. <laughs> that's his role as our husbandman. So where the first Adam failed as a husband, the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, is victorious. He's victorious. And so we should look at him as an example for every one of us, especially those of us that are, that are men. Look, if we're a husband, we can look to Christ as an example for us to be victorious. And, and for every believer, we need to understand that this husbandman, He'll never fail us. He'll never fail us. He is victorious. And so, and so here's the key principle, and then we'll move on. Look, a biblical husband, because this title is so unique, a biblical husband is going to understand that he is to mirror the one true husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. And guys, listen, man, every, every one of us that are men in this room, every one of us that have the privilege of having that unique title, We need to understand it's just not the male part of the marriage relationship. We're called to love and to nurture and to to work and to labor and to teal the ground in our marriage to ultimately bring forth fruit that brings honor and glory to God. That's that's what it is. And and maybe you didn't get that in marriage counseling or premarital counseling. You're getting it now. That's our job because it's a unique title. Number two, we have a unique responsibility and our unique responsibility comes from God Almighty, and, and that's to lead. And, and you know what's interesting? You know, I was studying this out last week and this week, knowing that, you know, this is where we'd be this morning. And, and many people, when they look at this portion of Scripture in Colossians and Ephesians, many people start uh, in verse 19 where it says, Husbands, love your wives, right? But actually, the whole responsibility of the husband actually starts in verse 18, Because it says, wives, submit to your own husbands as it's fit in the Lord. And so I want to tell you, before you love your wife, well, God actually intends for you to lead your wife. That's where our role and our responsibility begins. It's in verse 18. Wives, submit to your own husbands as it's fit in the Lord. And, and, And again, you know, we covered the wives two weeks ago. And so ladies, you know, for whatever reason... Uh, you know, uh, we, we were super low on that day, but it's, a, you know, the beautiful thing about technology, you know, that sermon's on, on YouTube and, uh, you know, by next week it should have twice as many views as what it, I'm just, I'm just saying, I'm, I'm watching the count on the views and there better be some thumbs up on that by the way. Okay. So, all right. So I'm not re-preaching the whole being subjection thing, but I would like to make the point that wives are to submit to their, their husbands. In other words, husbands, we have a responsibility to lead. We have to give them something to submit to. And, and so, look, let me, let me kind of go back to that, that Adam and Christ comparison because we learn so much from that. The first Adam, listen, he had a commission. He had a commission from God that God intended for him to accomplish. And, oh, by the way, he intended him to accomplish it with his wife. It, 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 was a, it, was a, 
It was a co-mission because they were to be together in doing this. And so Genesis 1, many of you know this, look at, uh, I've only got verse 28 on the screen, but let me just read it. Uh, Genesis 1, verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them, and God blessed them, and God said unto them, be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him and help meet suitable for him, a helper so that he can accomplish this mission that I've given him. I'm going to make a help meet, someone who's suitable to help him accomplish the mission. He was to lead his wife in God's mission that was given to him and given to them. Now listen, you know the story. And again, we don't have to spend a lot of time here unless you've just never read Genesis. But listen, you know that the first Adam failed in his leadership of his wife. You know they failed. As a matter of fact, as Genesis chapter 3 opens, we know that the serpent is introduced in the Bible. We know that he approaches the woman. He begins to cause her to question what God really said. And, and listen, God, hold, God is holding something back from you. Uh, you know, if you do it God's way, he's withholding. If you do it my way, you'll be just like God. I mean, this, there's so many things we could talk about in Genesis chapter 3. The Bible says in Genesis 3, 6, that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, listen, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Now, who's leading in Genesis chapter 3? She's leading, and he's passive. He's not even engaged in the mission that God gave him. And because of that, his passive leadership and his failure to lead his wife. Listen, man, she was deceived. The Bible tells us in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 14 that, that, that Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. But Romans 5 pins the sin of humanity, not on her, on Adam. Because he willingly rebelled against God's commandment and God's authority. And again, we have to learn from Adam what failed husbandry looks like. He didn't lead his, his wife in the mission that God had given him. He didn't have to come up with his own plan and his own mission. God gave it to him. It was spelled out clearly. And all he had to do was lead and listen... We can, we can learn some things from Genesis 3, one of which is if we don't lead our wife, the devil certainly is more interested in doing it if we won't. Somebody else will. If we won't lead our wife and our family toward God's mission, they will be led toward something. And God help us not to fail like Adam failed. And so, and so we see the, 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 the picture of failure in Adam. And so now let's look at Christ because, listen, the last Adam, Christ also has a commission. He has a commission 
And, and we could go to numerous places in the scriptures, but Matthew 28, I think most of you know all the verses this morning. Most of you know these verses. Matthew 28, the Bible says in verse 18, Jesus came and spake to them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and the earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. Amen. I'm with you. Here's the mission. It's a co-mission. Because I'm with you. You're a spouse to me. And we're to do this together. And so, and so listen, Jesus Christ gave his wife, his bride, the church, a mission to submit herself to. And, and unlike Adam, he is the perfect husband who has led us perfectly into his mission. His leadership is perfect and without failure. And so we, as husbands now, that, that carry the same name as Jesus Christ in that title, we need to make sure that we're leading our wife into a mission that she can submit to. And, and, and so listen, don't miss what I'm saying here. I'm telling you, if we're not careful in the way that we lead, our wives may be submissive to us, but it may be toward the wrong mission. <laughs> I mean... I mean, look, in Genesis 3, Adam is passive and just hanging out, and, and his wife has taken the leadership role and, and deceived by the devil, and things really unraveled rather quickly. So here's, here's the key point, and, and, and again, I use this terminology very precisely. A biblical husband, notice the adjective, a biblical husband, is going to have a mission for his wife to exercise submission to. Remember, Paul is writing to Christians, the saints at Colossae. So when he deals with the husbands in this passage, he is dealing with saved men. This isn't just a generic moral compass for the entire world. This is very laser-focused and precise. These are the saints and faithful brethren at Colossae. Biblical husbandry always results in a mission for your wife to exercise submission to. And, and listen, if you're a biblical husband, it's going to be the Great Commission. God's already, God's already chosen the mission. You don't even have to put a lot of thought into it. Now, you need to put the thought into actually how it plays out in your home. But listen, you don't have to wake up tomorrow morning and figure out, what should I be leading my wife to do? What should I be leading? God's already determined that. He's given us that mission. And so we have to examine our life and our leadership as husbands and ask this question, and this is a very important question. Does the mission that I have set for my wife complement or contradict Christ's mission? In other words, am I leading my wife into into submission and obedience and, and fulfillment of God's mission for our marriage Or does my mission contradict Christ's mission? And listen, we got to be men full of faith. We got to be men full of faith in our leadership. It doesn't mean we're perfect. We we fail. We're flawed. Listen, I get it. I'm chief among us. Let's let's look. Let's just just be honest, man. We struggle, but we have to be full of faith in our leadership of our home. We need to be actively setting Christ's mission as the standard for our marriage. 
You know, I remember when my wife and I were dating, and uh, part of our dating relationship was having these type conversations. And, you know, at that point in our life, both of us had been saved for a number of years and discipled, and we were already serving in ministry, and, and God brought us together uh, in, in some pretty awesome ways. But I remember when we were dating, you know, those were some of the conversations that we had. Look, if we get married, uh, what is it that you want and desire out of this marriage? Where do you see this thing going? And if it's anything short of the Great Commission, we're probably not supposed to be together. Now, I know not everybody has that privilege or luxury in their dating relationship, but I'm just telling you, both of us personally as single adults realize God's call and commission on our life is the Great Commission and nothing else. There's no room for anything else as a child of God. And so, and so listen, if God is going to bring us together, then ultimately we're going to submit to his mission as, as individuals. And if God allows us to get married, we're going to submit to his mission as a married couple and make sure that our marriage is for the ministry. That's the point. Husbands, listen, let's don't passively sit back, disengaged from God's mission. Let's don't be like Adam. Let's be like the Lord Jesus Christ. And then then number three, the Bible tells us in this passage that as husbands, we have a unique command, and that command is to love our wives. And so we have a unique title. Listen, we we have a, a unique opportunity to lead our wife into God's great commission. Number three, we have a unique command to love our wives, to love our wives. You say, man, I told her that day we got married. Well, praise the Lord. Okay, that's good. I'm glad. Tell her, like, again, and, and like, prove it. And, and let me show you some things that, that God would have us look at. Ephesians 5 is the other verse that's not on the screen, but when you compare Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5, you get a little more info in Ephesians 5. Don't you hate comparing Scripture with Scripture? <laughs> it's like if you just left Colossians 3 alone, husbands loves your wife, love your wives, you're like, yeah, man, I got that. I did. I've defined in my mind what that is, and I'm doing that. You know, I'm doing that. Well, then you compare Scripture with Scripture, and it's like God drop kicks you. Bam! (laughs) Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, and there's no period at the end of that, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. And that's where all of us as husbands go, man, come on, man. (laughs) It was all good until you said that, Jesus. I mean, come on. So God gives us a little bit of clarity on what it means to love our wives. And so the first thing that we need to understand is the measure of love is Christ himself. The measure of love is Christ himself. In other words, husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. And all you have to do is ask the question, as the church and as a believer in Christ, how much Did Christ love us? Listen, he loved us all the way to the cross. And he gave his life for our sin. He willingly gave his life. He laid his life down. He gave himself completely because of his love toward us. Okay, all of a sudden that hit level 10, right? (laughs) Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church. And so the measure of our love is not the home that we grew up in. It's not what we define as, well, this is how much I should love my wife, and, and then I'll stop, or, or, or self-defined uh, measure of love. No, the, the measure is Christ. You love her like Christ loved 
the church. And by the way, if you're saved, you're part of the church, so you know what that kind of love is. The method of love that Christ exercised was death. He, he gave his life. You say, man, I wish I wouldn't have came to church today. This is, <laughs> this is getting harder and harder as a husband. Listen, Christ loved by giving his life. John chapter 10, I love this passage. Look at verses 17 18. Jesus himself says, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me. Who killed Jesus? Nobody. Well, the Romans did. The Jews did. We did because of our sin. All of that's true, by the way. But at the end of the day, Jesus Christ said, Oh, no, actually, I'm the one that laid my life down. I lay it down that I might take it again. No man can take it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. This commandment I've received of my Father. And so listen, uh, Galatians 2 and verse 20, Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the method of our love toward our wife is death. It's the laying down of our life for her. And you would say, man, I'd lay my life down in a heartbeat, man. If, if something happened, somebody broke into my house, I'm going to be first one on the front line. There's no way that this person is going to get to my, to my wife, to my children. And, and listen, that, that is honorable. But God doesn't want you to just lay down your life in those situations. God wants you to lay it down every day. Every day to love your wife. Every day to, to meet the need and see the fruit of God cultivated in her life. Which leads to this third point, number three, the management of love. And we need to understand as husbands, we have this thing called headship. Headship. And what that means is, and we get that out of Ephesians 5 and verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife. And, and all the men in the room say, man... Yeah, that's right. Amen, brother. Okay. I'm the head. <laughs> and she's the neck. Okay. <laughs> you know, the, the interesting part of headship is everything in your human body is regulated and controlled from your head. It, 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 it assesses the need for the rest of your body and makes the adjustments necessary you smash your finger with a hammer, nailing in a nail, the head knows that hurt. I should grab it and squeeze really hard. And I should also not say non-church words while this is happening. All that comes from the head. The head is able to assess the need and move the body to meet the need. Well, listen. As it relates to head, headship, Christ is the head of the church. The Bible says he's the savior of the body. He knows what we need, and he provides what we need. And, and listen, as a husband, headship doesn't mean we just get to sit in the throne in the living room and rule our kingdom. No, headship means that we actually assess our wife's needs, and we die to meet those needs. We die to ourselves to meet those needs. We die to ourselves so that we can become the Savior, if you will, of the body, which is the wife. That's what Christ did 
That's what we did. Uh, That's what we are called to do. And then number four, listen, we need to see the mirror of love. Because ultimately, God, listen, the scriptures are so incriminating. Have you ever read the Bible and thought, man, God knows my inner thoughts. (laughs) Get off me, man. (laughs) Like, God, God, this last point, God says, okay, I've said all this, and I know you husbands still don't get it, you know, so I'm going to make it real plain. The mirror of love is self. In other words, love your wife, just love her like you love yourself. And you say, wait, how did, how did you know I love me? Well, Ephesians 5, the Bible says in verse 28, show all men to love their wives as their own bodies. We're to love our wives as our own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth it and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. And listen, I don't know if you just read what I read, but listen, God calls out every man in this passage. Because there's not a man in this room and there's not a man streaming this that does not love himself. That was a good spot for an amen. That's okay. I'll take silence as consent. Man, listen, we love our bodies. If anybody's going to get nourished, we're going to get nourished. You know what I'm saying? Some of us have been nourishing ourselves a little too much, but that's, you know, whatever. If anybody's going to cherish ourselves, it's going to be a man. He's going to nourish himself. He's going to cher- He's going to make sure if anybody is taken care of in this home, number the king. Number one, I'm hungry. I'm going to get something to eat. I'm going I'm to make sure I'm, I'm looking right for church. Every hair or, or lack of hair is going to be in place. My beard oil's in. Listen, we take care of ourselves. If we want something, we go get it. No matter what it costs, we don't even check the checkbook half the time. Amen. I, ladies, I, I don't know how much more of a softball I can lob to you. For you to just, you know, it's right there. It's, it's right there. It's just right there. Listen, man, I, you know, Amazon, it's, it's like, I don't even go through the checkout process. It's buy it now. I just, I don't even want to deal with the small amount of conviction I feel of putting this in the cart. Buy it now. I'm the man. Bam, right there. <clears throat> Your wives are telling on you, by the way, in the room. Okay, so look. With the same fervor, the same intentionality, and the same intensity that we selfishly love ourselves, men, we are called to love our wives as our own body. And and there's no man in this room that does not love his own body. There's no man in this room that does not nourish himself and cherish himself and provide what he wants and needs for himself. And God says, okay, yeah, you do it because you need to be like Christ and, and all the spiritual reasons. And, and God knows we're knuckleheads. So then God just narrows it down and says, okay, you know how you love you? Do that to her. And that's where it's like, oh, yeah, okay, I got it. Men, we got to understand that we're, we're not called to love our wives because she deserves it. By the way, you and I don't deserve Christ's love and he loves us, Right? Uh, you didn't deserve Christ's love, and yet he loves you unconditionally. She, you can't in your mind measure whether or not she really deserves, deserves your love or not, and then that be the motivation for your love toward her. <clears throat> the, 
By the way, if you love your wife when you think that she deserves it, the minute she stops deserving it, you'll stop loving her. You'll say things like, well, I just don't love her anymore. And listen, can I just say that for a saved man to say that out loud means what you're really saying is, I'm in sin. And I'm not a husband the way Christ intended me to be. Ladies, you need to be aware that Satan has a master counterfeit for this thing called love. Because God built you to receive love from a husband, from ultimately your one true husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if God gives you this relationship in human form, the devil wants to destroy that because he knows that you need and receive love. And Satan destroys and counterfeit love, counterfeits love, which is self-sacrificing. He counterfeits it with lust, which is self-centered. In other words, if you're not careful, women, you will be susceptible to lust, but men specifically use that to get what they want because men always get what they want. They always get what they want. And, and, so, and so if we're not careful as husbands, we'll begin to do loving things toward our wife, not because we love her and are willing to lay down our life for her, but we're doing it out of lust, expecting something in return expecting something in return. And then when we don't get what we believe we're, we've earned in return, we become angered, we feel cheated. And the truth is the whole motivation was wrong from the very beginning. So love is not self-centered. Love is self-sacrificing. If you're unmarried and you're hearing this message, if someone tries to defile your purity to get what they want out of your life, they don't love you. They lust after you. And lust doesn't stop when you put a ring on. So sexual sin will always be a weakness in your marriage and in your husband's marriage until you submit to Christ. And the more you give into that as a woman, if you're not careful, the more you feed his desire for lust instead of love, uh, the more of a hold that the devil is going to have in your relationship and in your marriage. So here's the point. A biblical husband is going to love his wife and give himself for her. That's what a biblical husband looks like. He looks like Christ. He looks like Christ. How are we doing? We okay? I love the silence. Last point. Last point, but I think it's important. Lastly, God gives us, out of, the, out of verse 19, a very unique warning. Husbands, love your wives, and we've covered that in detail. And then the last thing he says to us out of Colossians is, be not bitter against them. So God gives us a warning. He says, husbands, be not bitter. And if the room wasn't silent before now, it will be in just a few minutes. The Bible tells us that bitterness is a root Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 to 15. It is a root, according to the word of God. The Bible says, follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. So God tells us that this root of bitterness can spring up, and in most marriages it does, and if we're not careful, it will defile us. And so listen, when love weakens, and that's why point three is so important. Guys, we, we have a unique title 
As husband, we're called to lead, we're called to love, and if we don't follow God's prescription for us, what will set in is bitterness. When love weakens, bitterness sets in. Without love in our marriage, we begin to be resentful for our contribution to the marriage and also what we're not receiving from the marriage. Giving sacrificially becomes absent in our marriage. We begin to give begrudgingly. We do what we do out of a sense of duty rather than affection toward our wife. And listen, we've already discussed that a man should care for his wife as he cares for his own self. So bitterness is a root. And like any good piece of vegetation, anything anything with a root left unchecked will ultimately bear fruit. So there is a root of bitterness that you have to be mindful of in your marriage. And when you see it, it has to be dealt with appropriately. Because if it's not, listen, bitterness unchecked in your marriage will really bear the fruit of bitterness. And listen, nobody wants that harvest. No one wants that harvest. It won't be long in your marriage and as as a husband that your perspective of your spouse will change. Instead of being for her and willing to die for her and give yourself for her, you will turn against her, and she'll turn against you. Your wife will become the cultivating factor in seeing the fruit of bitterness in your relationship. All of a sudden, she'll be the reason that you feel the way that you feel. And, and you'll begin to question, and, and God only knows where that rabbit trail ends. You know, God's Word tells us very precisely that, that bitterness has to be dealt with biblically. I would say it needs to be dealt with in every relationship, but especially in the marriage relationship. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32 tell us, and and pay attention to the wording, please. Let most of your bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you. Is that what it says? It doesn't say that. It It doesn't even say just let bitterness be put away from you. What it says is, let all bitterness, and and the implication is, all wrath and all anger and clamor and evil speaking, and if you're not careful, those words define your marriage relationship. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking toward each other. God says, listen, put it away. Put it away with all malice, and be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Listen, in our marriages, and especially as husbands, if we cannot forgive our wife for whatever it is we can't forgive her for, if we have bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking toward her, and by the way, it works on, on the other side of the coin, but I'm dealing with husbands this morning. If we can't exercise forgiveness and put those things away from us, we truly don't understand what God, for Christ's sake, has done to us. He has... Do you remember that when you were a sinner, you were absolutely against God Almighty? in your sin, and the wrath of God abided on you because of your sin. 
And yet, for Christ's sake, God forgave us of all of it. And we can have perfect fellowship with Him and perfect communion with Him and a perfect relationship with Him. Bitterness left unchecked and the marriage relationship will bear the fruit of bitterness. And man, listen, it's, it is literally bitter in a marriage. James tells us in James chapter 3 and verse 14, If any have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This is not something that you should be excited about. I get worried, man, when I hear people talk about their marriage and, and it's full of bittering, bitterness and wrath and anger and evil speaking and here's what I said and here's what she said and, and none of it is edifying. Man, listen, that doesn't honor Christ at all. And you, you're certainly not involved in the mission. <laughs> you need to get refocused. And so, and so listen, when we have the root of bitterness in our marriage, it produces the fruit of bitterness and that root needs to be dealt with. And the only way that you can deal with it is to kill it. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 10 says this. Jesus says, And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth forth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. And listen, I fully understand the doctrinal significance of Matthew 3. But I'm telling you, God says there's an axe that needs to be laid to the root of some things in our marriages. And it needs to be cast into the fire because it does not bring forth good fruit in our marriage. And one of those things is the, is the root of bitterness. It needs to be dealt with biblically. And husbands, listen, you need to let God's word cut the root of bitterness out of your heart and your mind and your life. For the glory of God's sake. And so that's the key principle. Look, look, a biblical husband is going to allow the word of God to cut the root of bitterness out of his life. Now listen, if you don't deal with it, don't be surprised when you have a harvest full of bitterness and all the associated fruits that go with that. But a biblical husband realizes, hey, you know what? Based on the authority of the Word of God, I'm going to have a tendency to be bitter against my wife. How do I deal with that? You let the Word of God put the axe to the root. You let the Word of God have the authority in your life, and you let the Word of God cut that root of bitterness out of your heart, your mind, your thoughts, and you love your wife, and you lead your wife, and you look to you know, we started this, this sermon talking about the husbandman being a, a worker, a tiller of the ground, a, a, a planter of seed in the vineyard. You know how foolish it would be for a farmer to go out to his field and just yell at his crops how stupid and irresponsible and, why aren't you growing? <laughs> why is there no fruit? I mean, listen, it's a foolish farmer that blames his crops for the harvest. And it's a foolish husband, quite honestly, that blames his wife for his shortcomings as a husband. It's a foolish husband. Guys, listen. It's time for us to be the spiritual leaders in our homes. And what that means is that we understand God has given us a tremendous gift in our wife. He's given us a help meet to help us accomplish his mission. That means that we ought to pray for our wives. We need to pray for our wives. 
you need to lead your wife to church. You need to lead her to church. You need to lead her to get involved in the Great Commission. You need to lead her to be discipled. It doesn't mean that you can't disciple her, but God's got a standard in Titus chapter 2 that aged women teach other aged or teach younger women spiritually. They need the investment of other women in their life. You need to lead them in your home. You know, 1 Corinthians 14 says in verse 35, and, and not to get into the context of this verse, but listen, you know, this is that one of those verses when you read it, everybody wigs out. It's talking about women keeping silence in the church. And, and verse 35 says, if they will learn anything, talking about the women, let them ask their husbands at home, for it's a shame for a woman to speak in the church. And, and again, again, there's, there's a very specific context to that. But I just want to make the point, the spiritual leader in your home ought to be you, husband. You ought to be able to answer the spiritual questions that your wife has. And if you don't know the answer, get in the book. Get discipled. Go through ministry tools and training. Listen, be, listen, I'm thankful to be your pastor, but I am not the answerer of your wife's questions. You are. Based on the authority of God's word. You are. Make sure that your wife's not raising your kids by herself. Lead your home. Set the standard spiritually for your home. That includes music and television, by the way. That also includes dress and friends, dating, internet, and discipline. Invest in her spiritual growth. Again, hey, if you're her husband, go on a marriage retreat with her. Go on a marriage retreat. Learn how to be a husband the way God intended for you. If you're a saved man, you ought to invest in your marriage. You ought to invest in your marriage. You ought to invest in you. And I don't know why you hadn't signed up for men's conference while, while this sermon's going on, quite honestly. If, you, if you're not signed up yet, I don't know how much clearer it can get. You need to be there. Sign up for the men's conference. Encourage your wife to go on a mission trip. And if you're able, go on one with her. Go on one with her. Read a book with her. Teach your kids how to walk with Christ. Pray for your kids to get saved. Listen, one of the privileges as a dad, every night I try, and, and of course we, we now are in the age where we have, you know, we, we, we swing this back and forth, but every night we pray with our girls. We pray with our girls at bedtime, and, and we pray for them to get saved. You know, my oldest is saved, my youngest is not saved yet, but we pray for them to get saved. We pray for the things that God is doing in our family. They need to hear a dad and a man in the home doing that. They need to hear that. And so what kind of husband do you want to be? And, and I'll close with this. Look, you know, we, we started this sermon contrasting and comparing two husbands, Adam and Christ. And, and listen, if you took in what the Word of God revealed to us today, as husbands, we don't want to be anything like Adam. We don't want to be anything like Adam. We want to be like Christ. And maybe we're like Adam today, but by the grace of God, God can take his word and change our heart, change our mind, lead us so that we can lead our wife and our families. Okay, that's the point. That's where, that's where ultimately God wants to get us because, guys, listen, despite everything that's going on in this world, we have a mission to accomplish. We have a mission to accomplish. And God wants us to use our marriages and our homes to accomplish that. And that's the point. All right, let's pray. Father, we love you.